You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Martin Luther's Five Solas, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. If you have your Bibles with you, let us turn to our text today, and it's in John chapter 14, verse, and we're just going to read verses 1 through 6 just to get some context, and uh, then we'll pray. It says, Jesus said, let, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If, I were not, if it were not so, would I have told you that I would go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may also, and where I am, you may also be. And you know that, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for that statement that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, I thank you that you have not made it a mystery, that you have revealed it to us, and you have made the way in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as we celebrated this morning, as we sang about, as we took communion to remember all that you have done for us. We thank you, Lord. We just pray as your word goes out this morning that it would accomplish what you have set it out to do, that your spirit be here and bless it for your glory in Jesus' name. So if you've been with us the past few weeks, we've taken a break from the book of Hebrews and we are looking at the, at the anniversary of the Reformation. Of course, when Martin Luther went and nailed his 95 theses on the, on the castle door there in the city of Wittenberg and unwittingly started a revolution that changed the landscape of Europe and changed the world as we know it today. And out of those 95 theses came these five important, what they call solas. And we've been looking the past few weeks at, at sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, or sola, uh, sola fide, faith alone, or sola gratia, grace alone. I don't speak Latin very well. But so, uh, solos Christ, Christus, Christ alone, and solo deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And Pastor Nick has been taking us through that faithfully the past three weeks, and today it falls on me to speak to you about Christ alone. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to the other uh, uh, sermons, I encourage you to go to our website or, or sign up on the podcast, and you can get all kinds of uh, these Bible studies, and, and of course, our whole uh, library is, is up there. But, you know, we live in a, in a, in a world today uh, that doesn't deal well with absolutes, like that statement that we just read about there in John chapter 14, verse six. All behavior is starting to find a rational excuse for existence, no matter how depraved it seems. And C.S. Lewis once said, moral relativity is the enemy we have to overcome before we tackle atheism. It's not that people don't believe in God, which is in itself an absolute position, but that truth itself is becoming redefined. You'll be hard-pressed to find this idea written down anywhere, but the general way that people live their lives and how they expect you to live your lives is through this phrase, I have my truth and you have your truth. But really, do people take their version of the truth to its logical and inevitable conclusion? How many of you have heard of the comedian Tim Hawkins? 
Oh, good, good. A few Tim Hawkins fans here. Well, he has this bit in his stand-up comedy where it says, it's very important for you to know your wife's Starbucks order. It's one of the most important things as a husband, know what order your Starbucks, you know, what kind of coffee your wife wants to order at Starbucks. And so, you know, in his bit, you know, he, you know, he pulls up to the drive-thru and he orders his coffee and he turns to his wife and this is what his wife says. He says, you know, now, he says, okay, honey, this is what, listen carefully, listen carefully. This is what I want. Listen. I want a tall, skinny, sugar-free, decaf, soy vanilla latte, extra hot, whipped cream, double sleeve, no cup. Now, just let that rummage around in your brain a bit. Of course, Tim Hawkins does his little thing with it, you know, like, you know, did you get that? I hope you got that, you know? But th- for me, this, this whole joke is a microcosm of what our society and how they are living their lives. It all sounds good, but there is nothing that holds it together. Oh, I have my truth, sure, but yeah, it's my double sleeve cup with no cup. And I'm pouring all kinds of things into it, my whatever the newest latte thing is at Starbucks nowadays, what you're sprinkling it with, you know. Our truth is no longer found in Christ alone. There's, there's no absolute moral truth anymore. No universal moral standard from which people are drawing their standards and by which they operate. The morality of our culture is moving along with a broken compass that is also, unfortunately, having a strong influence on the church. In recent years, there's been a push by secular society to spread the idea that Christians and Muslims all worship the same God, and maybe you've heard this, in more general terms, to state that all religions basically are leading us to the same destination and that God will welcome all those who seek the truth, whatever that truth may be. Like we're all climbing the same mountains from different sides, you know, all going to the same top where God will meet us. And this was brought to a head uh, just recently, actually, last year, December, when a professor uh, from Wheaton College, Professor Hawkins, uh, made this statement on Twitter. She said, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people, people of the book. And as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. And of course, this this statement on Twitter is set to firestorm out through the conservative, you know, Christian um, uh, people. And, and of course, Wheaton College is, is, a, is a fairly conservative uh, Christian university. And this is, uh, this is one of their professors who made this statement. And, and of course, Dr. Hawkins has since been suspended by the council and she no longer teaches there. But this started a circle of events of people thinking, well, is this true? This is not true? And this, this writer and filmmaker from uh, Australia picked up this, and she wrote this thing in, her, in response to this controversy. She said that the world's three great monotheistic faiths worship the same God, or at least has hitherto been a mainstream position to take. Muslims accepted as a given. The Catholic Church has taught it since the Second Vatican Council, and Pope Francis, who Hawkins referred to in her statement, reiterated this last November when he said that Christians and Muslims are brothers and sisters. As someone raised in the Muslim faith, I found it bewildering that anyone denies that the God of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam Islam are indeed the same deity. Muslims are taught from a very young age that Muhammad is at least in a long, is, is the last in a long line of prophets tracing back to Adam, and that includes Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. Now, it's very obvious the propaganda that's been coming at us from the secular society to try and wedge us into this idea that all 
gods are the same, that, that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. We're all heading to the top of that glorious mountain and I'll see you there. But even in, even in these statements that this woman made in her article, truth has been redefined. I guarantee you get a Muslim theologian together and a Christian theologian together and they will agree on this one point. They don't worship the same God. But every day truth is spun to us a different, different ways depending on who is speaking at us from our radios and from our TV. And a, and a lot of Christians unfortunately view the Bible through their favorite political platform or their f- favorite political parties. And don't think the days of the apostles were any different. Paul was speaking to those in Athens who were, you know, the, the wise ones that were thinking and mulling over all the new truths that were moving through the city of Athens. And of course, our society today and, and the world today is happy to exist this way until we give them an absolute truth that Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. And that there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, which Acts 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 12 t- tells us. In that absolute phrase, Christ alone, we find the foundation of all that is reality. And I use that word strongly. All that is reality in the world today for Christians and non-believers alike. In Luther's day, the sufficiency of Jesus to save was replaced by saints and by works. This was Luther's commentary in reference to John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus found in the Gospels. And I quote, the devil does not intend to allow this testimony of Christ. He devotes all his energy to opposing it and will not desist until he has struck it down and suppressed it. In this respect, we humans are weak and stubbornly perverse and are more likely to become attached to saints than to Christ. Within the papacy, they have preached about the service rendered by those beloved saints that one ought to rely on their merits. And I too believed and preached thus, Saint Anne was my idol and Saint Thomas my apostle. I patterned myself substantially after them. Others ran to Saint James and strongly believed and firmly trusted that if they conformed, they would receive all they wished and hoped for. Prayers were said to Saint Barbara and Saint Christopher in order to avert an early and sudden death. And there was no uncertainty here. So completely as man, by nature bent on renouncing this testimony of John the Baptist. And he ends, Luther ends with this statement. He says, what, what I am telling you is that it is easier for us humans to believe and trust in everything else than in the name of Christ, who alone is all in all and more difficult for us to rely on him in, in whom and through whom we possess all things. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the word that was with God, and he was God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Yes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as even 
as even the death of the cross. I'm sorry, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death and even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God the Father. And there is salvation no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus said, it is finished. He said, all the Father has sent me to do, he had done. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But it was difficult to prepare for this morning, this topic, because the whole Bible speaks to the topic of Christ alone, and the centrality of Christ in all things. I first read the book of John, and then I read all of Philippians, and then, well, why not? I had read all of Galatians as well. And then, well, if you read all those, you might as well read Romans as well. And, and it just kept going as I, as I started to study and follow all these threads of the centrality of Christ. And centrality of the gospel being found in Christ alone was clear and concise through all those books. But Paul, interestingly enough, always had to warn the believers against slipping away from that essential truth in Christ alone. And none is more apparent than in the letter to the Galatians, if you've read that recently. It was, and he was not always kind with them, strongly exhorting them against moving away from the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross as the sole grounds of their salvation. This is what he said in chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, there was this group of people that would follow Paul around called the Judaizers, and you've probably learned about them, and, and they would attempt to corrupt the work that God was accomplishing through Paul to the Gentiles, and they, they were very subtle and very effective in their approach. They would get the new believers aside or they'd send letters in Paul's name to other churches or they would show up at, at the places that Ch Paul was preaching and they would say this, they would say, um, we, yes, we also believe in this Jesus that Paul preaches, but he hasn't told you the whole truth. Along with believing in Jesus Christ, you need to become a Jew through circumcision and adhere to the law of Moses. Essentially saying Jesus, and the law of Moses equals true salvation. But Paul strongly, strongly responds to this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed. From Christ, That's a very strong word. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Essentially saying Jesus plus something else will leave you with nothing. In his letter to the Romans, he spells out for us clearly how the law was given 
to bring us to our knees in defeat and show us how much we needed a savior in Jesus. And in Philippians chapter three, Paul makes it crystal clear and gives us this beautiful testimony of his salvation in Christ alone. He says this in Philippians three, verse four, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Let me read that again. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And you have a Bible that you want to underline that, circle that. If you have your computer, don't scratch or write on it. Just, you know, highlight it whatever way you can. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, I don't speak out of ignorance. I know the scriptures. I'm qualified in the flesh, but it means nothing. I want Jesus and him alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Now, of course, this was an obvious attack in Paul's day from Satan to try and derail the work of the apostles in the early church. In Luther's day, people were led astray because of their ignorance and not having access to the Bible. My question today is, what is our excuse? We have the Bible. We have great Bible teaching. We have radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week, teaching us the Bible, teaching us the gospel. Yet Satan is still at work trying to add things to the finished work of Christ. How can we protect ourselves against this and live only in this sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross for us? I visited many churches over the years and where they claim to live under grace, yet people seem to be still trying to work their way into the throne room of grace. Even churches that I have served at, I, I come across people who can't seem to fully rely on the finished work of Jesus in their lives. They always seem to be trying to earn God's favor. And even in my own life, I'm tempted many times to, to keep a tally of what I'm doing for the Lord, you know, as if it's going to help me get a couple steps closer to heaven. We learned, uh, uh, it's in our very nature to want to pay our way. And Pastor Nick alluded to this last week as we're looking at the topic of grace, grace alone. And he gave us this quote by Martin Luther. If God were willing to sell his grace, we would accept it more quickly and gladly than when he offers it for nothing. We learned pretty quickly, as many of you know, I was a missionary in Hungary for, for many years. And we learned quickly as we would do events, Christian events, outreach events, that if we wanted the people to come to the event, that we needed to charge tickets, whether it was $1, $2, $3. It was an interesting irony since we were essentially charging people to come hear the gospel. But if you said it was free, people would be less likely to come. The church body would be less likely to invite their friends and their family and their neighbors. People added worth to something that they were paying for. Many years ago, I used to do guitar lessons for free. I was pretty ignorant until I realized people weren't practicing. 
And so one day I just started to charge money, you know, and you, you know, behold, everybody started coming prepared because they were adding worth. I'm paying for this now. I'm going to work at it, you know. We, we, we're, if we pay for something, we seem to add worth to it. It's so difficult for us because our f- salvation is in Christ alone. And why is it in Christ alone? Because we were enemies of God. We were dead in our sin. We were bent on our own destruction. Not good people that needed a little push, you know, over the years, a little help along the way. The impossible had to be done in our lives. A miracle had to be done in our lives. And we had no part of it but to believe on the one who saved us from the miry clay and set our feet upon the rock, as Psalm 40 tells us. And if you're a Christian here today and don't feel like God loves you, you don't feel that he is pleased with you, you feel like you can't seem to get it right, you're always failing, always stumbling, please find security today in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. You are clothed in his righteousness as we sang today. God can't love you any more than he already does in Jesus Christ. Rest, rest today in Jesus. That's the only thing that you take away from this message here today. As we finish up today, I, I wanna look at some subtle ways that we still continue to add things to the finished work of Christ, some ways that we can protect ourselves, some of which are, might even seem noble, but many times lead us to failure or wrong priorities. And furthermore, finding your identity in these things will destroy you at its worst. Either it will destroy you with pride or it will destroy you with despondency or depression when you fail. In other words, finding your identity in anything but Christ can become a cruel master. Now I have five of them. If you're taking notes, I'm sure there are many, many more, but just for time's sake, these are the five that I came up with. The first is your occupational identity. You are what you do. Again, these are very subtle shifts that Satan uses to keep us from focusing on the author and the finisher of our faith. Let me give you a personal illustration to, to, so this point would come home. Many years ago, I was in, moving into Budapest and I'd been asked, we were heading up to a, a family conference in, in, in Budapest. It was the national conference. All the churches from around the country were coming. I'd been asked to lead worship for all the morning sessions. So we arrive at the camp put the bags in the room, of course, head down to the basketball court because that's what I do. And um, playing basketball, somebody passes me the ball, comes, don't catch it, you know, sprain my finger. Not thinking much of it at all. And uh, my finger's starting to swell, but you know, all that macho stuff, you're just playing basketball, sweating it out, whatever, adrenaline. Heading back to the room, I'm noticing my finger's getting stiff, it's not moving, you know. This is the hand that you gotta do guitar stuff with, you know. And it's just getting bigger and bigger and thicker and thicker. And it dawns on me, hey, you know, I've got to lead worship all week and I haven't even started. And what happened is I had to get somebody else to play guitar and I had to stand there with a microphone and lead worship and I hadn't done that. And all these kind of feelings of inadequacy and all these things that started to come in, like, I couldn't do this. What if I don't have my guitar? I, Mike and his guitar, we, we, don't, we always travel together. If I don't have that, people can't come to the presence of God unless I have my guitar. These are stupid thoughts that go through your brain, but they go through your brain, you know? And God had to teach me a lesson that I'm not what I do. I'm a child of God, and he just happened to call me to be a worship leader and a missionary, and that's the way that he was going to, to do his work through me, but he could do, he didn't need me. He didn't need my guitar. 
It was a hard lesson to learn. And I think those who are in the ministry are especially susceptible to this point. Ministry becomes our reason for existence instead of Jesus. And it can lead to a lot of pitfalls, which, you know, is, of course, another study altogether. And I think included under this point would be the desire for the approval of man, you know. We do things because we love people, right? We do things because we want to please them. Christ has loved us. We want to love people. We want to please them. But then that desire of approval becomes what drives us. Again, personal example. You know, if you're a worship leader, you have ever been on a stage, first thought when you get off the stage is, how did it sound? You know, is it good? Good, you know? Are people singing? Are people raising their hands? Are people responding? You know, which song was it? What did I do? You know, these things go through your brain, you know? And why weren't people singing? What should we be doing? You know, these kind of things. And we forget that, God's work, sovereign work is at work, is here and he's doing his work and we're just part of it, you know. I don't have to do anything crazy up there. I don't need to be a cheerleader and rah, rah, rah you guys up. You're responding to God's word. You're responding to the grace that's been set alive in your hearts. I don't need to tell you to worship God. You have so much to give thankful for, you know. But it can get, I can get wrapped up in that. I can get wrapped up in the approval of man and make that my aim make the thing that drives me, you know, very important thing, you know, and maybe you have examples in your life that you can fit into that one. The second one I thought of was your family identity. The Bible speaks a lot to the importance of family and being good parents and wanting the best for our kids, but, but once again, that's something that is important can get away from us quickly, you know, if it's not rooted in Christ whether it's a father providing for his family or a mother wanting to do what's best with her kids or the need for both parents to, to work to make ends meet. And then Jesus says, tells us this in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I don't know about you, but that's kind of one of those verses that goes, you know, chew on that for a while. But what's Jesus telling us? That if our love is not greater for him than for our family members, then it's not enough. And that it's not the best for our family. That if everything about our lives is not through Christ alone, we are letting our families down. We're not giving all that our families could get from us. That if Jesus is first, it's the best thing that could ever happen to your family. If Jesus is first in your life as a husband, it's the best thing that could ever happen for your wife. Same for wives. Best thing that can happen for your husbands. Because Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. And one of my favorite life verses is Psalm 37, four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Is your desire to be the best father ever? Delight yourself in the Lord. Is your desire to be the best mother, to provide for your kids, to give them the very best? Delight yourself in the Lord. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. This is a great verse to help us reconcile all those family decisions we need to make and help us keep our priorities straight. Third one I thought of is ethnic and national identity. If you've ever studied early missions, you studied the history of missions, you know, you, you get these pictures, the, the idea that it was Jesus plus Western culture 
equaled salvation. And you have these Africans dressed up in white suits singing How Great Thou Art in English down in Africa. As people got the idea that, that in order to become a Christian, you also had to become a Westerner. You had to become British or you had to become colonized. You know, it wasn't until people like Hudson Taylor came along who learned the language, wore the same clothes, wore their hair the same way, identified with the Chinese people, and were able to go places that other missions had never gone before. They understood what was the true gospel, Christ alone, not, not coupling together or trying, actually you're separating that culture so that people would find Jesus and find Jesus alone. This point was brought home to us a few years ago when the refugee crisis hit in Eastern Europe as, as you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Syrian refugees were coming across the border, up through the water, up through Serbia, up through Macedonia, up through Greece, coming in through Hungary. And some days there were 25,000 people coming across the Hungarian border. And our church was down there and Bible college was down there and we were working with other churches and trying to provide food and sleeping bags. And these people were coming, of course, from you know, countries that sun shines all the, day, all the time and it's cold, they need jackets, they need women who are coming pregnant, kids, no shoes, you know. We're just trying to love on them, love on them. But behind that was this conversation that was starting to brew within the church, within, you know, my, the people that I was ministering to. What are these people going to do? They're going to change our way of life. They're kind of, all these Muslims are coming. This whole of Europe is going to become Islamic and we're going to lose our way of life and we're going to just lose everything. And these are Christians talking. And it's a valid question. I'm not saying that's black and white. It's very gray. But I just felt the Lord prompt me when I was in these conversations to respond with, and, and what? What if they take away your way of life? What if they take away my way of life? Is Christ enough? Is Christ enough for us? What if here in the United States we start to lose some of the things that we have as Christians? Let's lose some of the rights. You know? It's good to think on these things now. Is Christ enough? As Paul said, are these things rubbish? Our, our quality of life, those beautiful mountains. Is that rubbish compared to Christ alone? It's difficult. It's very, very, very difficult question. It's not, as I said, not black and white. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. I don't want my kids growing up in an Islamic nation. I'd love them to have the things I had and be free to worship God and do those things that we can come in a place like this. But there are many Christians out there that don't have a place like this in China and Africa. Die every day for their faith because Christ is enough for them. Sorry to be heavy, but it's one of those points that really drives home. Is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? The fourth one is Christian identity. Now, of course, we know here at Whitefields Community Church, we are, of course, the best church. That's why you're here. The way we do things here is the way all churches should do things, right? And we have truly grasped the doctrines of the Bible. Oh, sorry. My, yeah, okay, my. And we do microphones perfect. And uh, we do everything perfect at this church, you know? Every church should copy our methodologies and start doing things the way we do things before they run their churches into the ground. Of course, this is absurd thinking, but many people think this way when it comes to their Christian 
identity. You know, history is littered with denominations of God and movements of God that believed that they had cornered the market on revival and how the spirit of God works. But what's God's word to us? Well, Micah 6.8 says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Our identity needs to be in Christ alone, not the church we attend, not the denomination or the movement that we are part of. Whitefields, of course, is part of the Calvary Chapel movement, if you didn't know that. And God, thinks, God did amazing things through that movement and is still doing amazing things. Over 1,700 churches worldwide that started from one little 20 person congregation back in the the late 60s. But you know, it's amazing, but God is using other denominations and other churches to preach the gospel and disciple. And who knows, in the next generation, God might raise up a whole new generation of people who are obedient to the call of the Spirit on their lives. And a revival like happened in the 70s through Calvary Chapel might happen in the future. And we pray for that. We desire that. And if that happens, where are you going to be standing if that revival doesn't have the word white fields above it? You know, history shows that every revival has brought new music and new methodologies, but the common theme has always been Christ and him crucified. The packaging might be different, but the gift is always the same, right? It's Jesus. Now, the last one, as we close today, I'm going to be short, so every time I preach, you can always be happy. Oh, I'll be short. And get to lunch early. Let me finish with this one. The identity of guilt. The identity of guilt. I'm not worthy. How can God use me? If I could just get my life together, then God could use me. Then God could do amazing things. What does Romans tell us, though? There is therefore no, not a little bit, it is a crack, or sometimes, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If you're born of the spirit, if you're a Christian here today, you're born of the spirit, you don't walk according to the flesh anymore. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You have become a new creation in Christ. Satan always going to tell you, you are not worthy. You're not. I'm not. I'm not worthy to stand here and preach to you today. But it's only because of Jesus. It's only because his righteousness covers me. He has borne my sin and he has borne my shame. And guilt is one of those things that can get away from you quickly and you no longer have control over it. And it can lead quickly to self-absorption, self-loathing, and it's a roller coaster ride that very few people are gonna wanna go on with you. You know, religion wants, to, wants us to feel bad about ourselves and they want us to work hard for that elusive approval of God. But what does Jesus say? He says, come all, come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He tells you to come into the throne room of grace. When? When you've got it all right, when you've got it all set up, when your life is perfect. Yeah, I've, I've prayed every day this week. I can go to the throne room of grace. No, when does he tell us to come to the throne room of grace? In our time of need. And that he will meet us there. And Jesus says, if you confess your sin, I am faithful, faithful to forgive every time. So today, let us cling 
to Christ. Let our worldview be seen through the pages of his word and the sufficiency of Jesus' death on the cross as the sole grounds of our salvation. Reminding yourself. You know, you have to remind yourself of the gospel. Reminding yourself of the gospel in a great, every way to have a, have a Christ-centered life. This is why we take communion every week. It reminds us. It reminds us what Christ has done for us. Don't let it ever become routine. Don't let it ever become routine. Let it affect you each week. Let communion affect you each week. Sometimes you can just pause, you know. It's good just to pause and, and just kind of confess some of those issues maybe you're dealing with. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no, we're not trying to rush you in and out here at McDonald's drive through communion, you know. If you need to pause, just pause and just confess. Lord, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. And then take communion in full confidence that Jesus has died for those things that you are struggling with. And just run to his arms. He's calling you. Run into the throne room of grace. He is faithful as the author and finisher of of your faith to walk you through those things. Christ alone is absolute truth. Christ alone satisfied God's wrath. Christ alone satisfied God's justice. Christ alone is our righteousness. Christ alone is the head of the church. Christ alone is our mediator. Christ alone is our hope in time of trouble. Christ is all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. It's humbling to be called sons and daughters of the living God and understanding all that you have done for us. Lord, and we, Lord I just pray today that you would forgive us. Forgive me, Lord, for adding things to the work of your salvation. And Lord, I just pray for any that are here today who have not found their rest in you. They're struggling with some of these things, struggling with guilt. They're not worthy. Struggling with the fact that they don't, they don't think you're pleased with them. I, Lord, I just pray you would just smile upon them in their hearts. Your spirit would just speak with them, speak to their hearts and just reassure them of your work in their lives and that they would just rest in your finished work Lord, help us always to remember the gospel. Help us to see our lives through that, what you have done for us, for your glory, for the glory of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.